You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. Welcome back, friends. Please make sure your pod seat and tray table are in their upright and locked position. The airlock has been sealed and docking clamps have been released for an on-time departure to the Functional Nerdverse. So... Maybe I'm just doing this because Patrick was making fun of me in the green room. Maybe. It's it's possible. <laughs> but I, I do feel that it's important for me to solicit to the entire universe of people listening to this podcast now that when I came back from, from a quick bathroom break in between recordings here, Patrick was uh, describing himself as nervously chattering away to, to sort of <laughs> buy time for me with our current guest, which I don't think I – mean, you don't cop to being nervous very much, Patrick. So I thought I that was uh, both – you know, you don't, but I think that's both adorable and uh, a, a measure of of regard that we have for Veronica Roth. Veronica, how are you doing? Good. I don't think I feel like you're probably not nervous anymore now that we've talked for three minutes. <laughs> you would be surprised. I was just headbanging I... with Baby Yoda. So <laughs> I, I, I still like I, I talk about this all the time. I'm very introverted, so you know, just the 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 idea of being you know in a conversation with someone. And like not having someone say, hey, this is Patrick, Patrick, this is Veronica, you know, you guys should talk Mm -hmm. like, yeah, just Mm -hmm. like going in blind and cold terrifies me. Yeah, you don't know what you're going to get. You don't? No. So, I mean, that, yeah, generally my job to be the greeter cat and to sort of like wind between people's <laughs> legs and be like, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Rub, rub over here, please. All that sort of thing. So, Veronica, you are with us for like a billion reasons. Some of them, of course, go back to you've you've been on the scene as a writer now for, God, does it feel weird to, to think that it's been more than a decade? Oh, uh, um, Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I made it weird, didn't I? It wasn't weird until I said that. That's my fault. <laughs> no, it, you aren't the one who made it weird. The person who came up in the signing line and was like a fully grown adult and told me that they'd gone to an event when they were 12 years old. That made oh. it weird. <laughs> oh, oh, that's both wonderful and horrible at the same time. Yeah, it was a real wow. moment for me. <laughs> Yeah, there's a whole journey happening there. You know um, what though? But I no, okay, I feel your pain there because I've been doing this this podcast and other podcasts for for like what is it now? 12, 12 13 years, years now? almost 13. Yeah. And to have people like, you know, uh Mer Lafferty tell me, "Oh, by the way, you know, my kid's going to be at this convention." Oh, great. I haven't seen your kid in, in, since, you know, forever. Yeah, you know, they're in college now. Fuck you. They are not in college. <laughs> Shut up. Forbidden. Forbidden. Yeah. I remember Why? when they were this big. There's no way they're in college now. Uh, mm. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole thing. So, but we've got a new book coming out from you. And by the time this episode airs, it'll have been out for a week and we'll, we will, the whole world will have, have reached it with, with some fanfare. But Poster Girl is something different. You know, you've been moving around uh, with a lot of different books in the last few years. You've had a duology, you've had a collection of short stories, you've had a standalone novel. Now we've got Poster Girl. So talk to us about what's happening in this new project. Well, Poster Girl is like a post-dystopian novel in some ways, but it's about a woman who was on propaganda posters for an authoritarian regime when she was younger. And um, then when there was like a kind of uprising and overthrow, she's locked away along with everybody else who's kind of favored by that regime. And uh, yeah, 10 years pass and then an old enemy comes to her with a deal 
which is that if she can find a missing girl, she can get her freedom. And this leads her down some unexpected paths, including into kind of her family's dark history and um, learning more about the world outside where she's been locked away. That is Poster Girl. So how does an idea like this come to you in the sense of like, were you, were you looking at propaganda posters for, for actual <laughs> historical regimes and did something just click for you or like where, how do we dig to the origins here? No, although uh, propaganda posters are really kind of cool, like the art style of them. And I did a lot of research when we were talking about the cover of this book, but um, no, it kind of came from my adult work so far. So moving from YA to more general, general readership, has been about like what happens after the stories we usually hear. So my last book, Chosen Ones, which came out like the first week of lockdown, is about um, a group of people who save the world as teenagers, and then they're kind of traumatized by it and are dealing with that. So that's Chosen Ones. And then I think when I was just casting about for like, what other stories do we want to hear the aftermath of? I thought about dystopia because, you know, obviously that's kind of how I entered the writing world with a mm-hmm. with an overthrow of a dystopian government. But um, my curiosity came from what happens to the people kind of on the wrong side of it instead of the heroes who save the day. So, yeah, yeah. I guess thinking of it as like you are exploring, you're in a period of your your creativity where you're sort of looking at the aftermaths of what we think is the real story. Like yeah. the real story is overthrowing the thing. The real story was saving the world. But but people's stories, if we accept those characters as real, they don't end in those moments. Like people persist and we have to live with the consequences of what's unfolded around us and what we may have contributed to. Yeah. That's true. And just, uh, I think it's thematically like more, I mean, this is what maturing as an adult is. It's like like accepting the things that you've done and the ways you've contributed to the world and um, taking responsibility for yourself. So at least that's how I've been thinking about it as I age. (laughs) So um, I I am interested in that for sure. A lot of um, Poster Girl sort of riffs off of the consequences of the surveillance state too both as like originally a tool of a dystopian regime and also in its aftermath, like what, what happens to all that information that's been garnered and like who, who holds on to it and so on. And I guess to some extent that has to reference our own practical reality. Cause we just, we're living in this highly like that, that kid in your sighting line who is now no longer a kid grew up in a world where, yeah, smartphones were, were sort of a thing, but now just like everybody has them and everybody has things in their house that are listening to them to ask for like to run me a timer for 10 minutes because you're, <laughs> you know, baking something, but it actually is listening to way more than that. And so it seems as if you've kind of moved from the the writing where these devices are in use to sort of looking at like, what does it mean for these devices to be in use everywhere and for it to have kind of like transformed who we are as people? Yeah. So the, the technology in the book is an ocular implant called an insight and it basically tracks your location, but it serves also at the kind of the same function as a smartphone. So it can play music for you. It can like show you music or show you movies. It, can tell you about the world around you if you want to look something up, like, you know, all those things that we carry around in our pocket, you carry around in your brain, which feels very convenient to me. Um, but I I have this soapbox that I've been on for several years quietly <laughs> with my own family and friends where I don't let things listen to me. Um, and I think I just, it comes from that. Um, but obviously like mass surveillance isn't new for dystopia. It's pretty much like 
standard. But I think what I wanted to do is a mass surveillance that felt more voluntary, a little less imposed from without, a little more like we invited this into our lives because of the convenience that it offers us, which I think is, you know, what we've done with the smartphone. We don't ask a lot of questions about the data that it gathers, but the government can purchase that data. So, yep. That's my soapbox. <laughs> well, yeah, Facebook can't. You can you can buy data on Facebook too, and and micro target somebody. Yeah, I mean, a stuff. couple couple years ago, there were like a bunch of articles written about the government purchasing data from a Muslim prayer app, and you know, this just like happened, and people found out about it, and then just moved on. And it's yeah. like, well, if it, if they can do that, they can do that for a lot of stuff. Just saying, I don't know. Well. <laughs> Uh, I, I I think it's I think it's it's very prevalent, and I for one welcome our governmental overlords. Do you? <laughs> He's not being serious. He's really not. I was like, oh no! no what kind of no 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 no? no, no. That's, that's, that's a deadpan I'm just irony. Saying, right I'm just there. saying that if they're listening, I oh, you know, I I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> as I hold my cell phone up. <laughs> right, right, right. That's a the, the visual gag doesn't render. Um, I mean, I will I will say I mean, we're living. God help us in in effectively a post. Row United States. And, you know, yeah. one thing that has been circulating more in people's conversations about, because um, so much of the, the legislation at the state level that's been emerging about what, what do we want to do now that the gloves are off, so to speak, um, has been around, well, like, who can you report? Or like, how can we find out uh, who who's trying to take control of their contraceptive destiny uh, and through their fertility through, you know, like if there's someone, was that really a miscarriage or should we follow up with that in some way? There's been a lot of conversations circulated on social media between and among people about um, like health tracking apps of different types and period trackers. I saw a commercial just the other day for the updated uh, latest generation iWatch. Uh, and all the different types of notifications that it can give you, like your heart rate dipped low during during your sleep cycle, um, or like we think you're ovulating now. Um, and it was interesting to me that if, I don't know, one year ago me had seen an ad for a smartwatch that could be like, you're ovulating now. Um, I would have been like, huh, that's interesting. I don't want or need to know that because I'm very done with kids at this point. But huh. And now I looked at it like, oh, no, 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 no. How do you turn that off? Like, can yeah. you, can I, can you get everything but that? Um, yeah. The idea of like our information that we voluntarily put out into the universe, thinking that it's still ours. Well, the, 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 this is something that if you, all the, the people who control that information, and this is not, this is not new. The people have talked about this quite a bit, all the tech People, the tech giants, the 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 people who control metaverse and all this stuff, uh, they don't allow their kids to have these devices, right? Yep. They don't allow these devices in their own homes. And uh, I think, like one of the things that troubles me is that when you when you talk to the average person about this, and I do on account of this being my soapbox, sorry, um, <laughs> sorry to those people, but they're like, "Well, I have nothing to hide," and it's like, "Well, maybe you don't right now," um, and that's great. But as we've seen, I think like things can change. Regimes yeah. change. Governments change. The things that were not a problem a couple of years ago might become a problem in the future. And that's just what you want to guard against. And, you know, there's a whole speech in Poster Girl about this, just like creating stable systems, systems that remain relatively consistent, even if the actors change a little bit. Um, you know, obviously, like that is impossible. You can't create a perfectly stable system. But 
um, they could be more stable than this. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yep. Is it, isn't it, isn't it fun how we kind of talk about, and I, I always feel like in science fiction and fantasy, uh, we live in a little bubble because we live these things. We read these stories. We're, we're almost more aware. And sometimes that makes us more paranoid. And then you talk to a muggle and the muggle's like, eh, I don't care. And you're like, no, you need to understand how bad this is. This is terrible. You did not read this harrowing novel. (laughs) Not not poster girl, but you know, in general, harrowing novel. (laughs) Skynet. We always quote Skynet. Skynet's coming. Mm -hmm. There's kind of a weird mix of like the futurist and the Luddite in our communities, right? Where, where we look to technology as, as, the solution or a solution anyway. And we also look, look at it with a certain degree of suspicion, not necessarily because of the technology itself. I think our, once upon a time we had anxieties about like the robots will come to life and they will know things and they will do things. And I think we've traded that in for now the technology that, that could be a solution or the solution is owned and operated by someone, but who is someone and what do they want? Um, my husband is, it works in the IT sector and he's very fond of saying nothing is free. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And that if something, if something is free, then you're the product. Um, yes. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're all just yeah. sitting there with that for a minute. We're like, mm, <laughs> mm. Don't worry. We pay for Zencaster. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that's, yeah. So <laughs> that helps a little bit. I he's mean, not wrong. That's the thing. He's not wrong. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. this is, you know, I, I always resist the, the social media urges that people get, like people will go, Oh my God, there's this cool app that makes a, an avatar of your face by taking your pictures. You just have to give it access to your photo. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing that, but mm-hmm. everybody else is doing it. And they're all, oh, this is so cool. And it's free about, it's like, it's not free. It's not. Yeah. I've definitely yeah. done that in the past. And I'm like, well, okay, I guess <laughs> no more. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So we got depressing really fast. Thanks, Tracy. We did. We did. But I mean, (laughs) I I think with respect to there's kind of a chain of ideas that's run through your body of work. And a lot of it comes down to the two questions of power. Like who has power? What are they doing with it? Are they a responsible user of their power? And fast forwarding a little bit here. I mean, you just recently announced that you have uh, three novellas that are going to be coming out from tour. Yeah. Uh, And the first the first one of them is a major fist bump from one English nerd to another here. A riff on one of the most famous and seminal tales of conflict with power on an individuated scale, Antigone. Yeah. Um, So, all right. I want to I want to kind of go in the fast forward machine to 2023 a little bit. Can you talk about Arch Conspirator? Because I'm psyched. Yeah, I'm also psyched. It's uh, yeah, as you said, a retelling of Antigone, which um. I feel like not everybody studied Antigone in school. I did. So I'm like, you know, Antigone, the plot of Antigone, it's that. Um, but basically Antigone is about two, uh, two brothers who find themselves on either side of a civil war. Um, they die at each other's hands and then their uncle Creon is the king. And he declares that the one on the wrong side of the war will not receive burial rights, which is like the harshest punishment possible in ancient Greek society. But the sister Antigone decides that she's going to give him burial rights anyway. So she sneaks away in the dead of night and does tries to do it, but then she gets caught and she, uh, 
she argues with Creon about his decree and the morality of it pretty like amazingly uh, for a while in the middle of the play. But then, you know, of course, he sentences her to death. Um, it's a tragedy. So this is not a spoiler. Um, yeah. Yeah. But so like my, a 3000 year old tragedy. Don't be too surprised. Yeah. Statute of limitations is up. Um, <laughs> but Arch Conspirator follows that uh, general plot, but it's set in the far future where there's one last civilization left and there um, the deterioration because of the environment is so in- extreme that they've started to take up gene editing. Um, but Antigone and her siblings are not edited. Um, also like reproduction is compulsory because of, you know, the dying like humanity. Um, and basically she kind of finds a way to use her physical body to start a revolution. Like the threat that her uncle, uh, puts on her becomes like the spark. Yep. That's, that's an interesting way to riff on the importance of the body from the original text that like, it's not, it's not about funeral rights anymore. It's about like the body itself is, is property, you know, right. that it belongs to you, that it has, that you should have agency with it and that it has meaning. Well, it's also like, I was trying to find a way to, because such a huge part of Antigone is the fact that she's a product of incest. You know, her father is Oedipus um, who unwittingly kills his father and marries his mother. Uh, so all of his children are like, yeah. Um, are products of incest. And that's a big part of, it's not like the plot of Antigone, but it factors into her psychology in such an intense way. I didn't really want to replicate it exactly, but I tried to play with the idea of like this thing I inherited that I don't have any control over um, in my, in my blood and my genes uh, is what makes me like feel cursed and feel like I can destroy myself so easily. So um yeah, that was my that was my take on the like edible stuff. <laughs> yeah, for sure. We've had a lot of people come on in the last it seems like last year or so in particular and again, publishing moves in cycles and so maybe this is more reflective of the cycle than anything. But a lot of people have had different kinds of retellings uh, mm-hmm. that have been coming out in the last year or so. Yeah. And typically they've they've centered in the realm of fairy tales like we've had alex harrow on and we've had um or people riffing on folklore in the sense of like uh jenna rose nethercott was on to talk about uh thistlefoot for baba yaga and other sorts of stuff and it's interesting that you've gone arguably further back than that to to that ancient greek text and been like like oh you're we're all doing fairy tales now hold my beer um, <laughs> sort of like, there's been a bunch of greek stuff too to be fair but not right, in, yeah, no, in fairness so we've got circe and other sorts of things so i don't want to i don't want to um minimize that but i guess for you what's What's the appeal? Is the appeal about just what Antigone is as a narrative? Or is it sort of about the types of stories we get out of that ancient Greek literature? Or little of A, little of B? Or? Well, I was like pretty uh, hard line about not wanting to ever do a retelling. That's actually where this book came from. So um, I was telling a friend online one day, I was like, oh, retellings, yuck, I would never do that. Um, not because I don't like reading them, but because I don't, like to play in other people's sandboxes with other people's toys. So uh, it was me just, I don't know, rambling about the things I wanted to do with my writing and didn't want to do. And then a couple hours later, I came back to her and I was like, okay, but what if it was (laughs) sci-fi Antigone? (laughs) And she was like, okay, well, that's a great idea. (laughs) So I kept, I kept sending her updates. I was like, okay, Antigone, but the tomb is a spaceship. Like, oh, Antigone, but it's a little bit sexier, you know, like all that stuff. And she was like, okay, just write it. Jeez, stop it. 
So all credit to her. She was just like the little nudge I needed to do it. I sometimes think when I put up a hard limit like that, where I'm like, I won't write mysteries. Well, Poster Girl's a mystery. Like I won't write retellings. Well, Arch Conspirator is a retelling. <laughs> so. so what I'm hearing is is what, what fans of your work who have like the, I wish Veronica Roth would do X going on. They just need to like find you in the universe and, and just poke you and see if they can provoke a pronouncement uh, out of you. Well, uh, I guess I've, uh, I've pronounced about not continuing the Divergent series and I am genuinely not going to do that. So I, I want to uh, caution uh, people like there's sure, yeah, no more of those. <laughs> right, right. Oh, I, I've they don't believe me now. I, I've drawn a line and said I won't write a best-selling novel that gets bought by HBO and made into a television show that lasts five years. So you've stood <laughs> by that, and I'm proud of it. <laughs> yeah, a, a lesser man stance. would have caved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> you can only do it with things that are under your control. <laughs> right. These pronouncements. Yeah. I would love yeah. to pronounce no more movie adaptations, but you know. <laughs> wouldn't that? Wouldn't that be be something? Mm-hmm. Although I, I guess we're we're also in a very different landscape now than when you know when the Divergent uh, film and its successors were made. Mm-hmm. Like film adaptations were were the thing, and it's not that they have ceased to be a thing, but I think uh, streaming television and like the prestige series and things that are emerging, um, like Yellow Jackets is uh, was originally a graphic novel series, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly, um, and. Uh, I mean, plenty of other examples. Certainly, the the MCU is just sort of like running roughshod over the whole idea of like we're going to blend our our media from one format into another. But I guess, like, if would you have an interest in seeing any of your work in like a like an episodic format? Do you think that that is is a move that is friendly to the way you like to see your stories thought of? Oh yeah, um, I feel like it comes out better that way a lot of the time if yeah. you have a little more time because a book is not really like. A book is the length of a TV season. It's not the length of a movie. So in order to make it a movie, you have to really like box it up. Cut, 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 cut. Yeah. Yeah. So it's cool. Like, I'm, you know, if anyone wants to make my stuff into pretty much any of that stuff, (laughs) I'm pumped. All of those Hulu and Netflix execs currently listening. Come at me. Um, Yeah, greenlit. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I do like when it comes to movies, I feel like when they make a short story into a movie, it, it ends up being better. Yeah, actually, my my agent has made that argument lots of times that she feels like the better home for movie adaptations is short fiction, because yeah. you can definitely get the whole story in. And there's also still space to sort of move your elbows around and expand, which I think probably accounts for why so much of Philip Dick's stuff has yeah. made the leap onto film because yeah. I mean, while he wrote tons of novels, he just has a lot of really juicy, bonkers, thought provoking stories. Yeah. I was just thinking about the minority report while I was saying that, um, mm-hmm. man, yeah. Philip, good job. Definitely. <laughs> uh, all right. So I'm feeling picks of the weekish picks of the weekish. What do you say? You think so? Yeah. All right, so I'll do my best to provide a good example here. Um, But folks who listen to the podcast know that I'm not a video gamer myself, but I I watch other people play video games like normal humans watch movies. 
Um, and so I tend to get really invested in video games from the experience of what's not just fun to play, but sort of like fun to watch unfold. And my current, I will sit down on the couch with Husbeast and watch him play the game because I'm just like, this is just ridiculous and delightful to me, is a game that's available on pretty much all the platforms. Um, it's out on Switch, it's out on uh, PS5, and so on and so forth. I think you can just get it on PC on Steam, too. It's called The Cult of the Lamb. Um, and it is both adorable and horrifying at the same time. So the best way to describe it is imagine a roguelike game format, by which I mean like there's a dungeon sort of scenario where you have to sort of go from mission to mission and it is possible for your character to die for keeps and so on. Uh, and so it has that kind of like potential intensity to it. But you're a lamb. Uh, and so it's got Animal Crossing vibes to it. It's like Animal Crossings, but Animal Crossing, but hella dark. So the the premise for the Cult of the Lamb is the game starts, and you've got this sort of like animated cutscene. All the art style is sort of like an adorable New Yorker cartoon meets the art style for the board game Root, if that means anything to you. It's a tiny little cartoon lamb, uh, and you are being sacrificed by a bunch of of terrible other barnyard animal type creatures to their evil cult and you are your throat is slit and you die it's not like super graphic it's a cartoon um but you you fall down and as, you, as you're bleeding out and dying a spirit called the one who watches visits you and it's like i will bring you back to life but in exchange, you have to form a cult that will obey me so that I can rise to power and destroy these evil cultists who like are, are bad. And you're like, sure, game, let's do it. And so you're, the game starts with you having been resurrected by the one who watches. You smite all of the people who just murdered you. And now you got to go out and start a cult. And so you build a little town and you recruit little cartoon goats and sheep and cows and dogs and cats who come and they like do little worship things and you like deliver little sermons. There's no real language in it except the menus that allow you to choose what your actions are. Animal Crossing style, very Animal Crossing style. There's like word bubbles for characters, but all their voices are like like sort of like that. Um, and it is just deeply twisted and dark and weird and also thoroughly charming at the same time like occasionally you have to like sacrifice one of your cult members but if you like jazz them up the right way they will just happily walk up to you to be sacrificed and now i'm gonna burn them at the stake and wow. and so on the theme of like power is weird yo um i gotta say the cult of the lamb is a sort of fun engaging moderately twisted experience that's worth the time so check it out. <laughs> I uh, I have a friend who, in order to, you know, as like a conversation starter, will ask you, her name is Lauren. I just feel like I should chat her out specifically. Sure. She'll ask you, okay, there's a cult in your name and people have to take communion based on like what your preferred yeah. body and blood are. <laughs> what are the substances? <laughs> oh no. So it's like tequila oh, and crackers, you know, it's just like whatever. <laughs> Um, and it really does spark conversation. I'm not asking. You don't have to answer, but I just... Uh, I, yeah, I would need to dwell on that. Yeah, I mean, you really have to think about yeah. it. You don't want to be too I mean, tea would be one thing, but I'm not really sure what the uh, what the body part would be. Mm -hmm. um, it feels, possibly ice cream. It feels sort of like sacrilegious to even do this as a conversation starter, but I like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Back in the day, uh, I, I played World of Warcraft. Mm-hmm. 
and I was a role player and uh, I was part of the guild and the entire guild overnight uh, closed up shop and went from Alliance to Horde. And I rolled a character, an undead, an undead mage named Mordecai. And I was very conscious of the fact that I was a anonymous person typing things into a keyboard, talking to other people who were anonymous. Like I had no idea who they were. So I never wanted to get into weird situations. I never wanted to have, like I was a role player. I never wanted to have a romantic plot. I never wanted to do like anything that would be, you know, icky. So one of the things that I did with this character was I made him an asshole. The idea okay. behind this was I, I thought if I if I made him mean and if I did like those kinds of plots and stuff would never come up. No one would ever want anything to do with this guy because he's a dick all the time. And no. <laughs> uh, he was sort of second in command of our guild on on the horde side. And what would happen was the the guild leader whenever they wanted to recruit new people, they would kind of put them through the gauntlet of Mordecai. They would, they would arrange for Mordecai to show up uh, wherever these people were and just like go full on asshole just and just slag be, them mercilessly. Yeah. And it had the exact opposite effect of what I intended. Like everybody wanted to be around him. Everybody wanted to do stuff with him. And it became, and this is the, this is the tie in, the cult of Mordecai. Wow. <laughs> it you was, started it was a like, cult. I did inside by of accident. Yeah, it was like the cult of Mordecai. People were like, "Oh, we love him. We love him. Please, please bring Mordecai to this thing. Bring Mordecai to that. We love Mort. Bring Mort. Bring Mort." And I'm like, "Well, this just backfired." <laughs> I mean, the, mag the the magnificent bastard trope is yeah. beloved and used for a reason. Like, yeah. I, you may not in real life want that person around, but gosh, are they just fun? <laughs> In, in those other contexts, and wow. and as far as your question of what what is the communion like, he would he because you you're a mage, you make you make bread and water, right? That's one of the things you do, especially if you're going into a, a into a raid or into a dungeon. You make the food and water that replenishes people as they're going through the raid, and so uh, the whole thing, the plot point was that uh, whenever he conjured food and water, he put a little something special in there to make people like him a little bit more. And, and um, follow his okay. instructions a little bit more. Yeah. So God, I like it. <laughs> All right. So Veronica, what, what's your pick of the week? Um, well, I think I'm honor bound to pick a book because I do love it and I need sure. to tell you about it. Um, it's the stars on dying by Emery Robin. This mm -hmm. is Cleopatra in space. Um, nice. but I, and I just like started reading it the first couple pages, you know, you're getting situated with the language or whatever. And then it turns out that in this like futuristic space society set on an entirely different planet in another galaxy, like the way that they pass like kingship down or queenship is through this, like take this pearl that you like insert into your head. And it, it is the consciousness of like the former conqueror, which is like Alexander the great, whatever. Oh, wow. So like you carry him in software form in your head. And for some reason, I was just like, yes, <laughs> this is it. And I started telling everybody about this book. I was like 100 pages in. And I was like, you have to read it. So good. It just kept uh, getting better and more interesting. So I just have to, I have to say, read it. It comes out in November, though. So a little bit. Okay. So this is, this is a, this is a pre-order. Yes, yeah. please do. God, it's so good. 
Like if you've, if you've been like, wow, I haven't really fallen in love with like a big, uh, it's huge in scope. Like it's very detailed. So if, if that's the kind of reading you like to do and you haven't fallen in love with one in a while, I feel like this is a good one. Stars on dying. Yep. Nice. Nice. Mm-hmm. All right. Hey, Patrick, what's up? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, since I think this episode is going to go up just before Halloween, I'm going to pick uh, Marvel's Werewolf by Night. Oh, I'm so excited this? to hear you talk about this. I have so many questions. <clears throat> yes. So this is on Disney Plus. It's a it's a it's a one one off. Uh, they, they used to do a comic book called werewolf by night. And so this is kind of loosely based on that. And, uh, it's in black and white, which is really cool. And they, they even do little effects here and there to make it seem like it's an old style monster movie kind of thing. Um, they have one little bit of color in it that, and it's the only thing that's in color for, for the majority of the episode. It's called the bloodstone. And it's, it's a story of, um, there is a, there's a hunter. This is how it starts. There's a hunter uh, named Bloodstone who has died and he, he was the keeper of the Bloodstone. And it's not, it's not really laid out if if he was named after the Bloodstone or the Bloodstone was named after him. Uh, but there's all these other hunters who hunt monsters in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And, uh, they all come together for a competition, Uh, to hunt a monster in order to take on the mantle of the bloodstone and become the new bloodstone. And uh, again, it's all in black and white. It's very moody. It's very much a throwback to like the old monster movies of the day. And it's just really neat. I don't want to give too much away, but uh, it was really, really well done. Uh, I, I enjoyed it immensely. Tons of like monstery Easter eggs. If you're, like they're they're really starting to bring us into the other sides of the Marvel universe, right? Because now they're they're talking about extra stuff. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah, this is the this is the supernatural side. This is the monster side. Yeah, we know we're Blade a, is coming in a couple of yeah, years. Yeah, we're getting Blade! another glimpse into yeah Blade, uh, uh, Man Thing. Um, you're getting uh, stuff like uh, uh, potentially Ghost Rider. You know, uh, there's lots of things coming into this that you that is is drawn from this and, and can be related to the show. Uh, so it was really cool. I I was joking when I first saw it. I thought it was going to be uh, potentially uh, I don't know if you guys know this or not. J. Jonah Jameson, Jr. OK, so J.J. J.'s son is an astronaut, but he becomes a werewolf in the comics. So I thought maybe it was going to be him. It's not him. Uh, it's something else completely. But it was it was really really well done. Really good. Very quick and short. I want to say it's like fifty minutes long. Okay. So uh, it's not a it's not a huge big investment. It's just a one shot, and uh, it's fun. So I I suggest awesome. you check it out. Where well, guys, okay. this is well time for me because I'm about to go travel for a while, so I need stuff to do. <laughs> yeah, there you this go. is this Hopefully is the lamb and and the werewolf. So. Uh, you know. All right, I need to uh, like, and I think you can talk about this without it being spoilery. But you've met you've met Deirdre. You know what type of a creature she is, uh, yes. Patrick. She is at a phase in her life uh, because she's like get a, gotten into Buffy and to other sorts of things where she's like wanting to do horror more. But you know she's still only eleven, and so there's like only so much horror that you can like do. Do can I show her Werewolf by Night? Like, you know, you know that she's not like a normal 11 year old, but she's also, you know, I think you can. I will tell you that there there's they get away with doing 
uh, a little more violence than they normally would in a Marvel thing. They get yeah. away with a yeah. little more blood and gore because it's in black and white. Right. Right. So, so, so I, I don't feel like it was that intense. I don't feel like it was that uh, super scary. So I think mm-hmm. I think D could watch this. Now I will make another recommendation for D, and this is specifically for D. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm uh, listening. DC's League of Super Pets. DC's League of Super Pets. All right. Okay. And here's my selling point for D, and that's why I'm saying okay. this is all for D. Mm-hmm. Uh, an army of super powered guinea pigs. There you go. <laughs> she's she's gonna be all over it. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell her this, and she's gonna be like, "We're going home now." Yes, <laughs> and uh, the voices of uh, uh, oh, The Rock as okay. as Crypto, yeah. uh, the dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kevin Hart is Ace, and if you don't know, mm-hmm. uh, you know Crypto is Superman's dog. In in yeah. in Batman Beyond, Ace is Batman's dog. Yeah. Right. So so that gives you a little clue into to how these things are going. But there's also lots of other characters. Uh, uh, the the guy who plays Cassian Andor. Uh, uh, oh, Diego, Diego Luna. Diego Luna. Is that his name? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he plays Chip, the squirrel Okay. Uh, okay. in this. Uh, then there's a couple other characters as well. But yeah, it's it's. I, I've given you my line for D. That's my line for D. Okay. I think D would right. would be all over this movie i'll tell her this is a recommendation straight from evil uncle patrick so (laughs) all right so it's been really awesome having you with us veronica i feel sort of like dumb being like where can people find you and your work but this is a thing that we do so where can people find you and your work in 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 this here universe of interwebs and also meet space Trust me, it is not dumb. Um, i'm my website is veronicarothbooks.com but i'm on instagram at veronicaroth that is where you can find me. And thanks so much for having me. This was awesome. Oh, it was great to have you. Holy crap. This year is just flying by, isn't it? Sheesh. As always, thank you for listening. Special shout out to our backers over on Patreon for putting up with all the shenanigans. Tracy, totally Tracy does over on our super secret private facebook group i mean (laughs) she is just constantly posting stuff over there like you know articles uh movie and tv show trailers even like daily music videos at this point i mean yeah that's that's totally all tracy so thanks for uh thanks for backing us if you want to know what the hell I'm talking about? Go check out patreon.com slash functional nerds and throw us a couple bucks. Then you will gain access to our super secret private Facebook group. Now, I will say you and I have to be friends on Facebook in order for me to invite you. It's a Facebook thing. It's weird. So there is a process. But still, uh, it would be really cool if you backed us and then, you know, joined us over there. Anyway. Robert and Todd, they totally promised us they would do this spinning sign thing on their street corners to drum up some listeners. And to date, they haven't actually followed through. So 
If you could go give us some stars on your favorite podcast platform, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, wherever you're going to, to find us and listen, that would be awesome. We'll, we'll work on the spinning sign thing with Robert and Todd as maybe sort of a holiday push. I can see them now dressed as elves and not the cool ones from Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. Cannoli Joe said he might, might consider some sort of social media campaign around the poodles for, you know, the upcoming Hugo season. Cough. Before I forget, Beyond the Trope hit 400 episodes recently. That's pretty cool. Giles and Michelle were very, very properly excited about this. 400 is a huge milestone for a podcast. To celebrate, why not go check them out at beyondthetrope.com. They put out a new episode every Tuesday talking with writers, artists, and creatives from all over the place. And that 400th episode was pretty cool. So again, check them out over at beyondthetrope.com. Now, I'm sure that this is the point where I would normally have some more uh, stuff to kind of say, things to tease our backers with, but I totally forgot to write it, so... Mr. Carpiers, you got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. If you've if you've never listened to the podcast, there there's there's two different styles here. There's there's Tracy who does prep work and comes up with some very thoughtful questions, and then oh squirrel. Oh, for God's sake, Patrick Louise. <laughs> Are you okay with me recording you today for the purposes of this podcast? <laughs> okay, that's probably a good enough signal. <laughs> when someone comes up to me and says, "Hey, I really love what you do," I'm like. I'm sorry, do you know who I, like, I think you have me confused with someone else. The whiz bang and the gosh wow and the sense of wonder stuff. My favorite thing about time travel is I actually had a time travel joke for you guys, but you didn't like it. I'm so excited.